I've called this piece, We All Fiddle While the Indus Drowns. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Thus spake the ancient Mariner in Coleridge's opium-infused poem from sometime early two centuries ago. Many years ago, I predicted that the global north would cynically turn its back on climate refugees as soon as drought, heatwaves and floods began to decimate the population of the global south. This week, those once radical lunatic assertions appear both reasonable and prescient. I'm writing this in a comfortable house on a pleasant evening in an Australian spring with a belly full of warm soup while 30 million Pakistanis seek shelter from 35 degree heat and 66% humidity without roads, roofs, fresh water or sanitation. The thousand people who've died during eight weeks of torrential downpour now confront thirst, starvation and disease. And for those who survive, a daunting rebuilding operation that affects literally millions of devastated homes and thousands of kilometres of road. In addition, a sizeable fraction of the nation's infrastructure has been torn asunder as glacial lakes burst out of their mountain strongholds and joined the petalitres of water that has fallen from eight separate monsoon events right into the northern regions of the Indus Valley. It truly is an epic disaster. 30 million people is bigger than the population of Australia or Texas or the Netherlands and Belgium combined. And they're sleeping in or slipping through steaming mud among the rubble that was once their city and they don't have any food or water. It's horrible. And all of this only weeks after a series of 50-degree days across the Gangetic Plain had birds falling out of the sky, joining dead buffaloes and humans in the streets and gutters of Delhi where they rotted until the heatwave subsided to the point where social infrastructure could swim back into action. At that time, I wrote, We don't need news stories about eagles falling out of the sky in New Delhi, floods in Kentucky or a heatwave in the Cotswolds to remind us that the four horsemen have settled up and are coming for our lettuce and our comfortable, privileged asses. Well, this week, I wonder. I think we do need those news stories to wake us up to what the four horsemen are up to. I look at Europe girding its loins for winter at the end of the era of abundance and I have to ask myself if we actually get it. The attacks on Macron for calling on French citizens to make sacrifices as he battens down the hut hatches sound to me disturbingly like toddlers throwing a tantrum in a supermarket when they're denied their favourite snack. Now I get it. It's demeaning and dispiriting to be asked to tighten your belt by a handsome young president who's sunning himself at a taxpayer-owned palace on the Mediterranean before jumping on an overpowered jet ski for a photo opportunity. It's also hard to swallow the story that Putin has single-handedly brought the world's supply chain to a grinding halt when his Ukrainian adventure is just the latest spanner thrown into the works of an overstretched machinery of the global economy. 
Boris Johnson pushed that line rather pithily this week, saying, yes, some Britons will face higher energy prices this winter, but Ukrainians are paying in blood. Of course, the vast majority of the media has totally failed to grapple with the reality that the rise of populism is not some aberration. It is simply a response to the fracturing of the social contract that if we pull together, we will all be better off. I grew up in that belief. Most of you grew up in that belief. It was the social contract of ongoing affluence. It's only part of the story, but it helps explain why Macron's warning fails to hit home. And it's not just the reaction in Europe that causes a yellow warning light to throb in the back of my mind. The Pakistan floods barely reached the Australian media until the death toll officially topped 1,000 earlier this week. We saw some of them on SBS, who often quotes Al Jazeera, but their coverage was very similar to that of the Indian heatwave. It wasn't nearly as pressing or as visceral as the relatively, well, comparatively mild summer in Europe. So, I spent a couple of hours in the middle of the night tracking down the backstory on the four horsemen ravaging the subcontinent. So when I woke up and turned on the radio news, I was slightly taken aback when a five-minute report on the climatology of the Pakistan floods was sandwiched in between a trade union reaction to the Federal Jobs Summit in Australia next week and a financial analyst discussing the price of homes in the US. Yes, the steady unravelling of our economy is important and it's pressing, but the chaotic throes of the global climate systems is leading directly to the collapse of the food supply for a sizable fraction of the world's population. And no matter how hard we wish it wasn't going to affect us, it will blow us apart. We might want those hungry people just to go away and reduce the pressure on the global ecosystems, which of course only exist for our benefit. But our wealth and our well-being is built on their disadvantage. Without them, we suddenly lose access to cheap clothing, basmati rice and all the other underpriced goods that allow us to live like kings while very little useful work. Think about it. Think about the impact that COVID has had on global supply chains, the availability of cheap labour and the time it takes to get a new computer, a packet of face masks or a plastic bucket. We spent three decades tightening supply chains, reducing stock levels, increasing productivity by taking the fat out of the system and we got it so lean and mean that one virus could bring the whole global economy to its knees. The major talking point of the job summit that knocked 33 million homeless people off the news is how we might bring that cheap migrant labour back. Watch this space, people. They're being driven out of home and they have to head somewhere. We're slowly waking up to the fact that a tightly independent global economy relies on global cooperation and fictionless trade. We've exceeded the capacity of the global systems to meet our needs and those systems are beginning to fail. Three years ago, we were shocked as hundreds of Australian and Canadian and American and Spanish homes burned. Earlier this year, we were shocked as thousands of Australian and German and Florida homes were inundated by floods. The heat waves in India and the floods in Pakistan have just pushed those numbers into the millions.
we have crossed a social tipping point. Just as we were getting used to a new normal based on our survival of the pandemic, the pressure has been ratcheted up a couple of orders of magnitude. The old new normal will look benign once we get a handle on what the new new normal is going to look like. And then we need to start preparing for the next new normal, at which time I, for one, am going to call for the elimination of the word normal at all. As a matter of fact, stuff it, I'm calling it now. There is no new normal. At this point, we transition to a state of permanent shock. <laughs>